Good morning, Hub City Church family. We're so glad you've decided to join us in worship this morning. If you're new to our church, we exist to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the word of God. If you'd like more information about our vision, or you want to get connected through community groups, or if you'd like to find an opportunity to serve, you can text the word Mosaic to 97,000 and we'll follow up with you in the next few days. Easter is just around the corner. The first of our Easter activities is our annual Easter in the Park outreach. On Saturday, April 1st, we'd love for you to join us at Twin Hills Park as we serve our city together. You can sign up to serve through our website or the Church Center app. Hub City Church Apparel is available for sale in the lobby starting today. If you pre-ordered, you can pick yours up at the Connection Desk. And now, as we're about to enter into corporate worship, if you're concerned about having little ones in service with you, we want you to be at ease. We love kids and have a lot of them here. There are coloring sheets in the back of the sanctuary. Our kids' ministry is always available, and we have a nursing mother's room with our service streaming live just outside the lobby to the left. Again, we're glad you're here. Let's worship Jesus together. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you all. My name is Matt Davidson, and I'm the student ministry leader here at Mosaic, which is soon to be and becoming the Hub City Church. And so I'm excited about that too. Glad you guys are excited about that. And I just want to say that I'm so thankful for this opportunity to be standing before you and proclaiming God's word. So if you'd like to follow along with the notes of this sermon, you can do so with the bulletins that were being passed out when you came in, or you can follow along on the Church Center app. Now before we turn to our text, I want to remind you that we are in a sermon series called Proverbs Get Wisdom. And we've been examining key verses within the book of Proverbs, and the book of Proverbs is a part of what scholars would call the wisdom literature. And it's called wisdom literature because a key word throughout the book of Proverbs is a Hebrew word that we now translate into wisdom. And this word in its original language can also have the meaning of skill, which to quote the ESV study Bible, it, this word means skill of choosing the right course of action for the desired result. In other words, Proverbs is wisdom literature because it's all about knowing how God wants us to live and then having the skill to choose the right godly action. So simply put, Proverbs, like the whole Bible, helps us know how we can pursue godly living and live in a way that glorifies God. So with that being said, let's recap where we have been through Proverbs and where we're going this morning. For the past few weeks, our lead pastor, Tad, has been walking us through what we've been calling deadly sins. During those past few weeks, we've examined the deadly sins of pride, anger, and even lust. And this morning, we're going to be turning our attention to another deadly sin called greed. Before we dive in, I want to turn our minds to a scenario that I think we've all experienced and can relate to in some way or another. Here it is. You're watching TV, okay? You're scrolling through social media, or you're browsing the internet, or even you're just driving around town. And then you see something that you don't have, and all of a sudden, you want what you've just seen, you don't necessarily need it, but you want it, and all of a sudden a desire is birthed within you that five seconds before this moment, you might not have even known that this thing existed. But all of a sudden, you want it, and maybe if you're like me, then there's this little voice in your head that sounds a lot like Aziz Ansari's character from the TV show Parks and Rec, and it's saying, treat yourself, right? <laughs> treat yourself, just go ahead and get it, get what you want, and treat yourself. And this is such a prevalent mentality in our culture. And if I'm honest, it's something that I see within myself. I see this war within where I try to justify and convince myself that there is a valid reason why I should just be able to go get something that I want, but that I don't really have a need for. However, I hope that we see in God's word this morning that this all too common mentality in our culture is actually really dangerous. God's word instructs us in a different way of living, which is actually a better way for us to live. But while we're on this note of the dangers of greed, I want to share a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor during the 1800s. 
He's also known as the Prince of Preachers, if you've ever heard him like that. He says the following about the dangers of craving more and more money. He says, the more money a man has, the more troubles he will have. And you know what I found to be the most frightening about this quote? It's that it's scary, scarily similar to what Michael Scott has to say from Dunder Mifflin Paper Company, where he says this about money, even though he's absolutely clueless most of the time, he gets this right, according to Spurgeon. But even he recognized and calls out the dangers of what Spurgeon basically quoted, because when Michael asks Stanley how he can get Stanley to keep working for Dunder Mifflin, Stanley replies, money. And Michael says, yeah, we all want money, but there isn't any in the budget, so tell me why you're really leaving. To which Stanley again says, money. And then Michael says, more money, more problems, Stanley. <laughs> and that is a scarily similar quote to what the Prince of Preachers is saying about money. Now, I know Michael, Squaw Michael Scott is just quoting Notorious B.I.G., and then he has no intention of speaking biblical truth, but with all jokes aside, here's my point. I think that even culture can sense the dangers of greed and the problems that greed can create. But the main problem is that culture is not looking through the lens of God's word. Church, if we're going to have any chance of living the way that God calls us to live, then we seriously need to examine what God has to say about this dangerous desire called greed. So that being said, I have titled this sermon this morning, Greed, the War of Gimme More. And it's my hope that you will see the sinful desire of greed exactly like the title of this sermon, that greed is a war within ourselves where we keep desiring more and more of what we don't actually need. So with that, let's go ahead and pray and turn to God's word. God, thank you for inviting us to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and that he took on the punishment for sin that we deserved, and that if we trust in what he did for us, then we get to experience the treasure that you really are. Because with you, Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins, but there is also an eternity with no more pain, no more tear, no more suffering, where we get to be with you, Jesus. God, would you help us to see you as the greatest treasure that there really is? Would you come and be near to us now and help us hear what you are wanting to say? God, with this sensitive topic of money and possessions, would you please help us to know that you are not merely after our bank accounts, but you are after our hearts, God. You want our hearts. Please help me now as I declare your word Help me to be faithful to what you want me to say, and please speak through me now, God, that I would decrease and that you, Holy Spirit, would take over now and declare your word to your people. Please help our ears to hear and our hearts to receive what you're saying this morning. Thank you, Jesus, that in you there is endless pleasure and nothing in the world can compare to you. It's in your name, Jesus, that I ask these things. Amen. Now, before we dig into God's word what it has to say about greed, I think we first need to examine what God has to say about how we should view our money and our possessions. Because if greed is a war within ourselves of wanting more and more money and things that we don't actually need, then I think that we need to know what God's design is for how we should view our money and our things. So with that, let's go back to the beginning and turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So here we can see that God created mankind, and then he gave mankind the right and responsibility to rule or have dominion over all the earth. And God says right before he gives mankind this responsibility to rule, that he is going to create mankind after his own likeness. Meaning that God created us the way that he did, and gave us this right and responsibility to have rule over all things on this earth because it actually reflects God. 
It reflects God because God rules and reigns over everything, including all that he gives to us. And so in this passage, we see that God gives us the right and responsibility to have all that we have so that we can use it and manage it in a way that reflects him and makes much of him. I think this is a crucial foundation that we must see if we're going to define greed and uproot it out of our lives. We must view our money and our things the way that God views those things. So here's how I would define it. It's the first point that's in your notes if you're following along. God's design for money and things is that we are temporary stewards who are in charge of managing what God gives us in a way that would give him the most glory. God's design for money and things is that we are temporary stewards who are in charge of managing what God gives us in a way that would give him the most glory. Church, I first want to say that this is a good design. I know for myself that at times it has been hard to face this reality that I'm just a temporary manager of all the things that I have, from the money that I have in the bank to the house that I live in and the stuff that's in that house or even the car that I drive. It's hard to face the reality that all of it is God's and I'm just a temporary manager or a steward of it, that I only get to have it temporarily because I won't live forever on this earth and that my purpose for having it is to manage it and use it in a way that would bring God the most glory. In the face of this reality, I sense this inner man of my sinful fleshly self creeping up within me, and it wants to be like, you earned all that you have, Matt. And since you earned it, why don't you just go ahead and treat yourself? My inner man says, because you earned it, go use it however you'd like, go get more money, Go get more stuff. But if we go back to God's design for mankind, we need to realize that we didn't earn all that we have. Instead, it was actually given to us. God entrusts us with it so that we can use it in a way that would give him the most glory. And I know I showed us in God's word already that he gives us the right and responsibility to rule over all the, all the earth. But I want to point to you the example in Scripture that shows that within God giving us that right and responsibility, he, gives, he also specifically gives us the money and things that we have. And that example is found in Job chapter 1, verse 21. And before I read that verse, let me give you the context of this verse, because there's really no better way for me to say this other than Job was ballin', okay? I mean, the dude was loaded. He had such prosperity that Job chapter 1... Verse 3 actually says that he was the greatest of all the people of the East. But the point of the book of Job is not to focus on his earthly prosperity. The whole point of the book of Job is actually for us to learn how to trust God in the midst of suffering. So Job, even though he's loaded, is about to lose all of his property and even his children. And we see this in the first chapter of Job that God actually allows for this to happen. However, God only allows for Job's property and his children to get taken from him. He does not allow anything more or anything less than that. And I want us to examine the response that we see Job have once he learns that he's lost all of his property and his children. This is what Job says in Job chapter 1, verse 21. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Look at who Job says gave him all that he had. Job says that the Lord gave it to him. Job recognizes that all that he had acquired, all of his earthly possessions, were actually given to him by God. God created us and gave us the right and responsibility to rule over the things on this earth, yes, but within that, we also need to recognize what Job recognized, which is all that we have is given to us by God. All of our money and all of our possessions, they are given to us by God. Everything that's in our wallets and in our bank accounts, it's given to us by God. Every one of our possessions are all given to us by God. They are not ours. Instead, they are given to us so that we can manage them in a way that would give God the most glory and reflect him. 
We must view our money and possessions this way if we're going to understand what greed is and get it out of our lives. So I hope we can recognize what Job recognized, that all that we have, no matter how much or how little, it's given to us by God. So with that foundation being laid for how we should view our money and our possessions, let's turn to the book of Proverbs to better understand greed. Let's start with Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24. It says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. I'm going to read that last part of this verse again. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Now, the word withhold in the Hebrew can be translated to holding back or keeping for oneself. So holding, withholding in the Hebrew can mean to hold back and keep for oneself. And the Hebrew words for the phrase, what he should give, can actually be translated what is due or what is right to give. So what is due or what is right to give. Now, I don't know about you, but this leaves me with two questions in this passage. The first is, who would I be withholding my money from if I keep it for myself? And the second question that I'm asking is, what is it that I should give or what's right for me to give? What is this verse talking about? Now, the first question of who would I be withholding my money back from if I keep it all for myself can be answered with the foundation that we've already laid. If God is the one who gives us all that we have and we don't use it or manage it in the way that he tells us to, then technically we are keeping our money and our things for ourselves and withholding them from God, who gives these things to us and instructs us on how we should use them. So this proverb is warning us that we need to be careful to use all that God gives us in the ways that he commands us to, or it will only lead to us wanting more and more for ourselves. But all of that really doesn't answer the second question, does it? The second question was, what is it that I should give, and what is due or right for me to give? But in Proverbs eleven twenty four, what we're seeing is something that happens when someone views all that they have as their own. And in turn, they don't do what they should have done with what they've been given. Now, what I mean by this is if we really believe in God's design, that everything is God's, then we also need to realize that God gives us instructions for how we should manage what he gives us. God commanded the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy that when, he came in, that when they came into the land that he gave them, that they were to offer him the first of all the fruit that they would take from the ground. He also commanded them to give him a tenth of all the produce that they collected from the land that God gave them. And then fast forward to the New Testament. In my opinion, I think that uh, they're, they're not my opinion, but the Bible says that there's not a standard of giving. Um, it's not a specific percentage or number like a tenth was in the Old Testament. In fact, the examples of giving that we have in the New Testament are actually more difficult, in my opinion. The New Testament is more difficult than the Old Testament because it's not a tenth only. The reason why I say that is because the New Testament calls the church to be generous. It doesn't set a minimum or a maximum amount that we're called to give. Instead, it just instructs us to give generously. Paul encourages the church in Corinth to give generously for the advancement of God's kingdom so the gospel can spread to all the people. All throughout the book of Acts, we see the New Testament church radically giving away basically all that they had for the advancement of God's kingdom. And for me, one of the most moving examples of New Testament giving is when Jesus sits down and faces the treasury within the temple. He watches people put money into the offering box. And the gospel of Matthew says that many rich people we're putting in huge amounts of money. But it says that Jesus' eyes are drawn to a poor widow who comes up to the offering box and puts in two little copper coins. Jesus calls his disciples over and says, that widow 
put in more than all the other rich people. Jesus basically says that all of the rich gave out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty and put in everything that she had to live on. So we can see that the New Testament isn't calling us to a specific amount, but rather we are called to be generous with how much we give in relation to our income. The New Testament is clear. We are instructed by God to be generous with how much we give in relation to our income. And to show us that giving at least some of our income is in fact a biblical concept and that we're to give out of obedience and a desire for the gospel to keep moving forward, I want to highlight what Jesus makes clear in the gospel of Matthew. This is where Jesus instructs his followers on how they should give. In this passage of scripture, Jesus doesn't say, if you happen to find yourself giving, this is how you do it. Instead, Jesus actually says, when you give. And in light of the foundation that we have laid, it makes sense, right? If everything is God's and he gives us all the money and possessions that we have, then he has the right and authority to instruct us on how we should use it. The Bible is clear that in order to give God the most glory and obey him and be a part of the gospel moving forward, we are called to give to his cause. This isn't a matter of if in Jesus' eyes, it's a matter of when we give. Now, this isn't a sermon on giving, despite what it might feel like in this moment. Um, And since it's not a sermon on giving, I can't get into specific details on what generosity practically looks like. But I will say that the leadership here in this church family would love to talk with you about that if you're curious what it means to be generous practically. What does that practically look like in terms of giving? So please come talk to myself or another leader about that after service. But I mention all of this about giving because I needed to make sure that we know that Jesus himself makes it very clear that we are to give. It's not a matter of if. Instead, it's a matter of when. The Bible makes clear that when we do give, we are to give out of obedience of what God says, since he's the one who has given us all that we have anyway. And we give generously so that his name can be known among all peoples. And so what this verse in Proverbs is really saying is that whoever holds back or keeps for himself what he should be giving for God's glory will only suffer want will only have a desire for more and more stuff. And if we think about this correlation between keeping for self and not giving for God's glory, I think we can understand why we are surrounded by a culture that promotes so much greed, can't we? Culture isn't promoting a mentality of giving for God's glory. Instead, culture is trying to sell you the idea to keep all that you have all for yourself. But Proverbs 11.24 is telling us that if we do that, if we keep back for ourselves what God wants us to use for his glory, it will only lead to us craving more and more. So this leads us to our first characteristic that we see in the scriptures, and it's the first characteristic in in your notes. It's that greed is a discontentment with what God gives, so we keep for ourselves what we should be trying to use for God's glory. Greed is a discontentment with what God gives, so we keep for ourselves what we should be trying to use for God's glory. Now, I don't know about you, but I relate to what this proverb is saying about greed. I see in my own life how at times I want more. I want more money that I don't need, or more stuff that I probably won't ever even use, or I want bigger stuff like a bigger house or a newer car. And the list could just go on and on about the wants that aren't necessarily needs. But according to God's word, this craving within me comes from not living within God's design and me not liking or being content with God's design. It comes from me not viewing all that I have as given to me by God. And I think when there is greed in Christ's church, it's because at the bottom of it all, we aren't content with whatever money or things we have. So we either hold back what we should give and end up not giving, or we do give and our hearts just really want more because we aren't content with whatever is left over after we've given. But I draw this point from Proverbs 11, verse 24, because discontentment with God's design is at the bottom of greed. 
I want to make clear that greed isn't merely about having money. It's more about placing our contentment in having more and more money rather than having contentment in God's design for money and things. This proverb is clear that the reason for greed is because we don't like the design that God has for our money and things, where he gives us all that we have and then he calls us to give to his kingdom. So the scriptures are clearly teaching us that greed comes from a place of not being content with what God gives us. So we keep it for ourselves rather than using it the way that God intends us to use it, which includes being generous and obedient, giving to his kingdom. So again, greed is discontentment with what God gives, so we keep for ourselves what we should be trying to use for God's glory. Let's go ahead and turn our attention to the next characteristic of greed, which we can find in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28. It says, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. This verse is clearly telling us that greed is when we put our trust in our riches. And we just saw in Proverbs 11, verse 24, that greed is really about not being content with God's design, which basically means that we don't trust God's design. So this leads me to the second characteristic that we see of greed, which is greed is when we trust in our riches rather than in our God. Greed is when we trust in our riches rather than in our God. Based off of Proverbs 11.28, greed is clearly more than just having money, as I've already said. It's instead about setting our hearts on our money. It's about putting our trust in our money or our possessions rather than putting our trust in God. Now, the Hebrew word for trust that's used in Proverbs 11.28 literally means to place confidence in and feel safe in. This verse is saying that when we trust in our riches and find our security or comfort in them, rather than placing our confidence in God to take care of us, it's ultimately going to lead to our falling rather than our flourishing. What this means is when we place our confidence in riches rather than God, we will ultimately be settling for something less than what is true life and true flourishing. That's what this proverb is saying. Paul helps us better understand what this means in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Get this. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul is giving instruction to Timothy on how to counsel rich people. And I would argue that based on world statistics, that we are rich people, even if we aren't the richest here in the United States. Because statistically, even some, some of the lowest percentiles of income here in the U.S. are still richer than like 80% of the world. Paul says that if someone has money and riches, not to set their hopes on them because riches are uncertain. But instead, he says to focus on giving generously and taking hold of that which is truly life. Because this money can come and go in our lives. An economy can fail. We can lose a job. But Paul reminds us that God is certain. So if we put our trust in God to be a good and loving father to us, then we can be certain that he will take care of us and ensure we have what we need. That's why Jesus says, why would, uh, who would give a, children, a child a stone if they asked for bread? And the answer is that no one would do that. At least I hope no one in this room would do that to a child. But Jesus is saying that if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to children, then why wouldn't the God who loves us and is a heavenly father to us take care of all that we need? Now notice how I didn't say all that we want. I only said all that we need. Jesus tells us that God will take care of all our needs in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. 
It's in that passage where Jesus wants us to consider how we are more valuable to God than the birds of the air, yet God takes care of the birds and ensures that they have all that they need. Jesus says that God knows what we need and that he cares for us and that we don't need to worry about these things. So rather than placing our trust in money as the security to provide what we need, we should place our trust in God to provide all that we need. This is not to say that we don't have money or that we don't work, because we should have money and we should work for our money. It just means that we place our confidence in God rather than the number that's in our bank accounts. And again, greed isn't about having money, but it's when our hearts are set on our money and trusting it over trusting God. In fact, King David says in Psalm 62 verse 10, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. And let's think about that for a second. Wouldn't have David been wealthy because he was a king? He would have definitely been wealthy as a king. So he isn't saying that having money is bad or that having money is greed. Instead, he's warning us that if our our riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Don't set your heart on them. Don't place your confidence or your satisfaction or your contentment in your riches, but rather seek God in all of those ways for your confidence, your satisfaction, and your contentment. So greed is when we trust in our riches rather than in our God. Let's turn our attention to the next proverb and examine one more characteristic that God wants us to see. Proverbs 28, verse 27. I have to go a little bit further in Proverbs. Proverbs 28, verse 27. It says, Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. Now the Hebrew phrase for he who hides his eyes can carry the meaning of ignoring or turning our eyes from something. Okay? So this Proverbs is saying that if we turn our eyes from the needs of those around us and the needs of the kingdom moving forward, that we will get many a curse. Now, that phrase, many a curse, really stumped me, and I initially had no idea what it meant to get many a curse, because it doesn't really give us an explanation there. But where God took me as I tried to figure that out really helped me understand what this passage is saying. When I did a word study on curse in Hebrew, one of the verses that it cross-references to is Malachi chapter 3, verse 9. And in just a sec, we're going to read Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, but I need need to help us understand uh, the context of what Malachi is talking about here. It's saying that the priests of Israel were supposed to be following God's commands regarding their sacrifices and their offerings, but ultimately they weren't doing that like they were supposed to. And so this is actually God's voice in this passage. This is the Lord speaking in Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. So let's go ahead and read that. This is where God says, From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return This is God speaking again. God says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? God says, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Man, this is such a heavy word on my heart from the Lord because it's, it's just a, it's got a heavy tone to it, doesn't it? But what I want to point out is that the same word for curse that's used in Proverbs 28, verse 27, is the same word that's used in Malachi chapter 3, verse 9. It's saying that the priests are cursed with a curse because they are robbing God by not giving back to God what he says that they should have been giving. And so here's my third characteristic of greed. Greed is actually robbery. Greed is actually robbery, church. God tells the priests in those verses in Malachi that they are robbing him. And then they they ask him, how are they robbing God? God says that they're robbing him through what they're giving. They're robbing him because they're not giving what God says they should have been giving. And rather than giving, they're holding it back for themselves to use it however they'd like. 
And I think this is such a profound realization in God's word because we won't view greed the way that we should unless we realize that we, when we hold back and keep for ourselves what we should be giving to the glory of God, we're actually taking what God gives us and we're robbing him. We're robbing him of how he wants us to use it and he gives it to us because he wants us to use it for his glory among the nations. So if we don't give generously, but instead we live greedily, we are actually robbing God. We rob him when we only use what he gives on ourselves. So now that we've looked at the nastiness of greed, I'm going to give us a break, okay? It's not going to be heaviness of greed the whole time. I want us to look at some good news, okay? And this good news is the greed killer, If greed is not being content with God's design and not trusting him, then I would raise the question, what exactly is better about God than having money right now? What exactly is better about God than having money right now? And this is one of the happiest moments that I get to stand up here because it's it's exactly the kind of question that I love to answer. There is something that we can have that is far greater than all the riches that are in the world, church. A thing that is, and that thing that is better is the eternity that awaits those who place their faith in Christ. For those who believe and have confidence that Jesus was born a miraculous birth and that he lived an absolutely perfect life, totally without sin, and then he willingly stayed on the cross and took on God's wrath and the punishment that our sin rightly deserves, and he died on that cross, but he didn't stay dead. And he rose from the dead three days later, and he ascended into heaven where he is ruling and reigning as we speak. And he says for those who trust in him, trust in the work on the cross that he did, there is a place for you in heaven with him. This is the greed killer, church. This gospel is the greed killer. The way that I've put this greed killer in your notes is by asking this question. Do we believe... The promise that even if we have little in this life now, that one day it's going to be traded in for a kingdom with Christ. Do we truly believe that promise, church, that even if we have little in this life now, that one day it's going to be traded in for a kingdom? doesn't matter what you live in now. You're going to live in a kingdom one day. Do we believe this, church? Do we believe that even if we have little now, that it's just one day going to be traded where Christ will be? And Jesus says that his kingdom is like a paradise. This world Everything is going to pale in comparison to the kingdom that is a paradise with Christ. When are we going to stop living so much for this world and realize that everything we have in this world is going to be traded in for a kingdom? Even if we choose to not buy the biggest house that our money could buy or not have as many possessions as we could really afford, or not have the car that we want to drive. And even if we keep less money for ourselves for the sake of giving to God's kingdom, do we realize that all that we have in this life is just going to be traded for a kingdom that's a paradise because Jesus will be there? This is the greed killer. And this greed killer is the same idea that we find in the book of Hebrews Chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, where it says, By faith, when Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Church, the reward that Moses was looking to was the reward of eternity in heaven with Christ. The greed killer is not looking to the things of this world, but instead it's looking to the reward, which is Christ himself and an eternity spent with him. Now, I feel like I've given us a lot of things that help us understand the sin of greed and and what rather we should be living for and why living for King Jesus is better, but I really want to give us some practical things that we can do to put greed away. So to do this, I'm going to use the acronym REAP in your notes. It's spelled R-E-A-P, 
Now, each letter stands for a part of the takeaway that we can go and do. The first is read. Read. I want to challenge us to read and think about Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34, which is where Jesus is talking about not storing up treasures on earth, but rather storing up treasures in heaven. This is also where Jesus talks about that we can put our trust in God to provide all that we need. So I also want us to read and think about 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, which again, that's the instruction that Paul gives to Timothy on how he should counsel, counsel the rich, which I would say that we are rich here in America. So that's the R in reap, to read and reflect on those two passages. But here's what we do next. I want us to examine our finances. The E in reap is examine our finances. Examine what we are spending our money on. I want to challenge us to look at, are we holding back our finances only on ourselves? Or are we really treating all that we have as if it was given to us by God and that we would use it for the purpose of glorifying him? So we, as we examine our finances, we can consider what ways could we be growing in our giving more to the glory of God? How can we give more to the glory of God? So that's the E in examine, or the E in reap, to examine our finances. The A in reap is ask, that we would ask God to expose any greed that we may or may not see. So we read these passages, examine our finances, ask God to expose any greed that we may or may not see. We need to ask God to show us any ways that we might be disobeying his word and living in greed. And lastly, we need to prioritize the kingdom first. That's the P in reap. Prioritize the kingdom first. Sorry. Now, I don't want to leave you without an explanation of what it might look like to prioritize the kingdom. So I've got a few more points of application that we can really hone in on. It's going to be under the question, how do we do that? How do we do that? And the question is basically, how do we prioritize the kingdom first? What does that look like? Now, I primarily want to call us to focus on the order of these points, just as much as I want, to, want us to focus on the content of these points. These points are ordered number one through three, with number one being the highest priority and number three being the lowest priority out of these points. So to say that again, focus on the order of these points because the order of the points is how I think we prioritize the kingdom first. The first priority is this. Seek first the kingdom of God and give. Seek first the kingdom of God and give. I get this point from Matthew 6, verse 33, where Jesus instructs us to have our priorities with seeking the kingdom of God first. Now, we can seek the kingdom of God in many ways, okay? We can seek it first in many ways. We can seek it with our whole lives. We can seek the kingdom of God with our minds and our hearts and our actions. We can even seek the kingdom of God with our time. But for right now, I specifically just want us to consider what it would look like to seek the kingdom first in terms of our money, which I would encourage us to intentionally and firstly give at least some of our income to the building up of God's kingdom. For example, how this looks for my wife and I is that we have sat down and sought the Lord on what he calls us to give in order to be obedient and a part of the advancement of his kingdom. And through conversation and prayer and reading God's word and talking about what it would look like for us to give generously in relation to our income, the Lord has given us a great unity about the amount that we believe we should give in this current season. And so the way that we strive to seek the kingdom first is our giving. We try to give of our money and our income that God has given us. It's, it's that we seek that to give that amount first before we take care of any other monthly finances. Now, this is just one way that you can do this. It's not the only way to do this. But the point is, let's strive to trust God and seek him first with our money and give to this church and for missions across the nations. Next, let's look at the second priority according to God's word. It's that we can trust God to provide for our needs to live. 
So we seek first the kingdom of God and give, and then trust God to provide for our needs to live. Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew 6, 33-34, that we're to seek first the kingdom of God, and all the things that we need to live will be provided for us. He goes on to tell us not to worry about where these provisions will come from, but that we can trust God to take care of our needs. So priority number one is to seek first the kingdom of God and give, and the second is to trust God to provide what we need to live. And live, church, pay your bills, and use your money to pay your bills that you're working for, but seek the kingdom first and give, trust God to provide what you need to live. And I want to encourage us that even if our bills fluctuate, we should still strive to give the amount that we've already determined in our hearts before the Lord. I would encourage us to trust God to give us what we need to live as long as we're not senselessly spending on ourselves. So our first priority, again, is seek seek the kingdom first and give, and then trust God to provide what we need to live. And the third priority is this. Be a wise steward and save. Be a wise steward and save. Proverbs chapter 10, verses 4 through 5, basically says that the one who is diligent with what they have will have plenty. Have enough of what they need. And the one who gathers during the harvest is wise, but the one who sleeps during the harvest is a fool. Okay, the point of what that's saying is that the person who's not saving up when, it's, when it needs to be time to do that, that's kind of foolish. So be wise with your money and save it. Proverbs 21 verse 5 says that the plans of the diligent will lead to an abundance. So the point of these verses is saying that there is wisdom in saving our money and being a good steward of it. So just to recap those three priorities in their order, seek first the kingdom of God and give with your money, trust God to provide for our needs and live, and then be a wise steward and save. Now, if I could summarize my whole heart on this topic this morning, I would summarize it like this last point that's in your notes. Let's strive to give more than we spend on our own earthly pleasure so that others can have eternal treasure. Let's strive to give more than we spend on our own earthly pleasure so that others can have eternal treasure. Church, the whole reason why God has given us all that we have is for us to manage it and use it in a way that would glorify God. And as we've seen, one of the ways that God wants us to glorify him is by his name being known among all peoples. My hope is that throughout the course of our lives, we would strive to keep growing in how much we give so that others can have the eternal treasure of knowing Jesus as both their Lord and their Savior. Now, before we close, I wanted to leave you with an example of a man who lived a life that was so far from greed. This man lived a life so far from greed. He desired to give so much for the advancement of God's kingdom. This is a story from an excerpt of Church History by Charles White that talks about a man talks about a man named John Wesley. The story starts with saying that John Wesley at one point in his life bought some pictures to hang on a wall, okay? And after he hung them, he noticed a woman that he knew only had a thin linen covering to wear in the middle of winter. And when he reached in his pocket to give her some money to buy a coat, he found that he had little left to give her. So perhaps as a result of this, in 1731, John Wesley began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give to the poor and to the cause of God's kingdom. He records one year that his income was 30 pounds, and I'll give you the U.S. dollar translation later. His income was 30 pounds, and his living expenses were 28 pounds, so he gave two pounds away. The next year, his income doubled, but he still lived on only 28 pounds, so he gave 32 away. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds, and again, he only lived on 28, giving 62 away. The fourth year, he made 120 pounds, lived again on 28, and gave 92 away. Wesley preached that Christians should not merely give a tenth of their money, but that they should give away all the extra income that they have once the family was taken care of. He believed that with increasing income, the Christian standard of giving should increase, 
not the standard of living. He continued to practice this throughout his life, even when his income rose into the thousands of pounds. He lived simply and quickly gave his surplus money away. One year, his income was slightly over 1,400 pounds, but he gave all of it away except 30 pounds. He was afraid of laying up treasures on earth, so the money was given away quickly, just as much as it came in. Isn't that such an amazing testimony of this man's desire to live for the advancement of the kingdom? And just for perspective, the amount that John Wesley had at that high point of his income would be equivalent to $200,000 today in our money. But even when he made that much, he still lived on what would only be like $25,000 a year for us today. He lived this phrase, let's give more than we spend on our own earthly pleasure so that others can have the eternal treasure. So let's strive to grow in our giving for the advancement of God's kingdom so that we would give more away than we're spending on our own earthly pleasure. And as our income increases, let's consider consider to have our standard of giving increase and not our standard of living. Let's do that so that others can have the eternal treasure that's found in Jesus alone. Let's go ahead and pray. God, thank you for the eternal treasure that you are. And thank you for the gospel, God, that reconciles us to yourself. Even though we have an enormous amount of sin that should keep us from coming to you, God, you put it away on Christ on the cross. And and through that exchange on the cross, God, you give us the invitation, come have eternal life with me, child. Come be with me and live with me forever with I as your father and you as my child, God. That That is the invitation of the gospel. And I thank you so much for what Christ paid for on our behalf and that he, he didn't stay dead, God, but he, he has a room for us, a place for us if we trust in the work that he did on the cross. So God, I pray that we would not see this, this topic of greed and putting greed away as something that is negative for our lives, but instead we would actually see that you are calling us to live the best life that we can in this life now and in eternity. God, you want us to be looking to the reward the reward of being with you, being face-to-face with you, Jesus. Would you show us that you are better than any earthly comfort? Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen.